This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. In this month's series, I'm sharing cases of love gone wrong, soon after the couple says, I do. This time, you'll hear about a tragic case of a bride who saw many red flags in her relationship even before walking down the aisle. Her fear of angering her fiancé would compel her to go through with the ceremony, but within hours, that decision would become fatal. This is Chapter 3 of Till Death Do Us Part, the case of Kelly Ecker and Scott Sampson. Kelly Ecker told her mother that she had never been lucky in love. She'd had several relationships and had been married before, but each one had fizzled out or had been bad matchups from the start. So at the age of 49, she was in no hurry to date again. Her siblings, sister Kathy and brothers Ron, Kevin, and Scott, were all married, but for some reason, Kelly could never seem to make a relationship stick for the long run. Her mother Pat would say, that her daughter had self-esteem issues and just never felt like she was good enough. As a result, Kelly would ultimately reject the men she was dating before they could reject her first. Just why Kelly thought this way about herself was a mystery to those who knew her. Kelly was kind, generous, beautiful, and accomplished. She'd received a Bachelor of Science degree in nursing and then continued on to earn a master's degree. She'd worked as a registered nurse in the intensive care unit of Union Hospital in Terre Haute, Indiana for several years, and her patients and co-workers absolutely adored her. She loved nursing and gave her patients extra time and attention. She often stayed long after her shift ended if a patient needed her. She was also a great mom. Kelly's sons Kevin and Tom were grown, but her youngest was still in grade school. For the sake of his privacy, I won't share his real name in this episode, I'll just call him Davy. Kelly's Facebook page was full of photos of her and Davy spending quality time together, visiting the children's museum, parks, or just grabbing a bite to eat. It was clear that Kelly doted on her boy, and he was the only guy she showered her love and attention on for a time. Friends also recall how much Kelly loved Christmas and did everything she could to make the holiday extra special. She decorated her place beautifully and even had multiple Christmas trees, decorated in different themes and colors. Davy loved Christmas with his mom, not solely for all the gifts he'd received from her, but because she was so joyous during this time of the year. She loved planning special outings and surprises for her and Davy to celebrate the holiday season. Kelly also had lots of good friends. She was close with many of the staff and her co-workers at Union Hospital, and they all sung her praises. Kelly was described as fun, energetic, hardworking, and possessed of a sweet and lovely personality. In 2013, a doctor at the hospital had taken notice of the pretty brunette. Dr. George Scott Sampson was an anesthesiologist and a recently divorced father of three daughters. He'd seen Nurse Kelly Ecker around the hospital, but had yet to meet her. Of course, Kelly was no stranger to male attention. With her youthful energy and ever-present smile, the dark-haired, blue-eyed Kelly 
even when dressed in nursing scrubs and sensible shoes, was still a knockout. Scott Sampson took notice of her and asked another doctor to introduce him to Kelly. After the introductions were made, Scott invited Kelly to have lunch with him and then began asking her on more formal dates. Before long, Scott and Kelly were a couple. Scott could have been considered a catch by some women. He was single, nice-looking, and in good shape, and a doctor. At 54 years old, his hair was graying, but it only served to make him look distinguished. Together, Kelly and Scott were a handsome couple. I said could have been considered a catch, but there was a problem. Scott's personality. While he could come across as charming at first, and it's no doubt that he charmed Kelly when they first began dating, before long, his true colors were revealed. Many of the details of Kelly and Scott's relationship were shared by her co-workers, family, and in-court depositions by her closest friend, Sharice. According to them, right away they saw that Dr. Scott Sampson was not a good guy. Kelly was close with her family, especially her parents, Pat and Tony. They enjoyed meeting for dinner as a family and spending holidays together. Of course, Kelly invited her new beau along for these gatherings. But Pat would report that Scott acted bored and annoyed whenever Kelly's parents or other family members were around. He rarely spoke to them, only to Kelly, whispering so only she could hear if he did say anything in their presence. It appeared he resented sharing Kelly with anyone else, even her own parents. And Scott didn't resent just Kelly's parents. He also viewed her son Davy as an intrusion into the relationship. He looked for reasons not to invite Davy along and pouted when the boy was around. He didn't like Kelly paying more attention to her son than she did him. Even though Scott's doctor's salary was much higher than Kelly's wages as a nurse, her friends and family noticed that when they were all out together, Scott often got up from the table when the check came. Kelly was often left holding the bill and paying for Scott as well as herself. But acting like a spoiled baby in a tightwad weren't the worst of Scott Sampson's qualities. Soon after they began dating, he became very controlling and possessive of Kelly. Since they worked at the same hospital, he thought nothing of dropping by the ICU anytime he felt like it to check up on his girlfriend. He would question whoever was on duty at the nursing station, demanding to know where to locate her. When he was told she was with a patient, he would make another nurse go and fetch her. He expected Kelly to be at his beck and call even when she was busy at work. Scott would text Kelly frequently, and when she didn't answer right away, he would become angry and call her repeatedly until she did answer. She would then get an earful from her boyfriend, who would call her terrible names and accuse her of treating him badly. He became even more controlling at the hospital over time, sometimes showing up with his lunch and taking over her workstation where others were trying to do their jobs. He didn't care if he interfered with her work or pulled her away from her patients. Her friends couldn't understand why Kelly continued to see Scott when he treated her so badly. But Kelly had tried to break things off with him, several times. But each time she did, he would call and text her repeatedly demanding she see him. When she stopped answering her phone or responding to his texts, he would show up at her home and sit in front of her house, calling her phone repeatedly, honking his horn, and just generally being a nuisance, until she felt forced to give in and let him inside. He would then beg her to take him back. He'd apologize and promise that things would be different this time, 
until she finally relented and agreed to get back together. But each time she took him back, there would be a short period of better behavior from Scott, and then things would get worse than before. He began to openly insult and degrade Kelly in front of others. At a hospital party in 2013, he became drunk and groped Kelly in front of her co-workers. He made insulting comments as well. Charisse encouraged her friend repeatedly to break things off with Scott, but according to her, Kelly never stood up to her boyfriend. Instead, she began ignoring his bad behavior and giving in to his demands in order to pacify him. Charisse even told the court that Kelly asked her to stay the night at her place when she didn't want to have sex with Scott. She told her friend that every time she and Scott were together, he expected to have sex, and if she declined, he would become extremely angry. In order to avoid these scenes, Kelly would sometimes use her friends or family members as buffers to avoid being alone with him and coerced into sex. Otherwise, she felt she couldn't refuse him. Of course, her mother Pat couldn't stand Scott Sampson. She saw how badly he treated her daughter, and over time, she saw Kelly lose confidence in herself and get lost in her abusive relationship with Scott. But whenever she would bring it up to Kelly, her daughter would defend her boyfriend. You just don't know him like I do, she told Pat. Sometimes he can be just wonderful. She also told her mother that she believed she could, quote, change Scott by loving him and sticking things out with him. He'd been hurt in past relationships, Kelly said, and sometimes he acted possessive with her because of it. But he always apologized, Kelly said. Charisse knew Kelly wasn't happy with Scott. It seemed to her that she was just trying to gather the courage to break up with him for good. But she saw how Scott's behavior worsened day by day, being verbally and emotionally abusive, stalking Kelly when they weren't together, and driving away most of her friends and even some of her family with his behavior. So she was very surprised when she learned that Kelly had agreed to marry Scott Sampson. Kelly always insisted to others that Scott Sampson had another side to him. He wasn't just a boorish, rude, and disrespectful boyfriend. He could also be generous and loving and very romantic, according to Kelly. Scott could especially turn on the charm when he knew Kelly was at the end of her rope with his behavior and ready to call it quits. It happened again and again. Scott must have realized that Kelly was ready to break things off for good because one day he showed up at the hospital and made a grand gesture. He surprised her with a big bouquet of roses and in front of all her co-workers, got down on one knee and proposed to her. I don't care what anyone says, a public proposal is a complete setup, unless the couple has staged it in advance for their friends and family. The person being proposed to in public is put on the spot. If you say no, you'll look like a real jerk after your partner has taken such a risk and popped the question in public. Kelly definitely felt put on the spot, and in order for Scott not to cause an embarrassing scene, which was sure to happen if she declined, she said yes and accepted the diamond ring he held out to her. Almost immediately, though, Kelly tried to find ways to break off the engagement. But each time she broached the subject, Scott would throw a fit and a big argument would ensue. The fighting grew more heated after the couple became engaged. But Kelly, at Scott's insistence, continued to go through with the wedding plans. Cherise said that her friend did not appear at all excited about her upcoming wedding, even as she shopped for her wedding dress and flowers and booked the wedding venue. Pat also reported that Scott showed a stingy side once again, 
making Kelly pay for the most expensive items needed for the wedding. Scott may have defended his unwillingness to pay for the wedding because he had recently purchased a home for he, Kelly, and Davy to live in. Scott purchased the 7,000-square-foot ranch-style home in April of 2014 for $399,000. The five-bedroom, six-bath home was situated on 13 acres of land with a long driveway separating it from the main road and expanse of wooded property behind. It included a 4,000-square-foot finished basement and two garages, one attached and one detached, with space for up to six cars. Kelly and Davy moved into the home soon after it was purchased. It should have been a fairy tale come true for Kelly. She was engaged to a handsome, wealthy doctor, and she and her son would live in a beautiful home, a mansion, really. But rather than a dream come true, Kelly found her life descending into a nightmare. Becoming engaged to Scott and moving in with him, rather than resulting in him being appeased, as Kelly thought, made him even more controlling and abusive than before. He believed his fiancée belonged to him now, and apparently decided he could treat Kelly however he liked, while insisting she obey his every demand. As their wedding day neared, Kelly decided she couldn't go through with marriage to Scott Sampson. She formed a plan B to get out of it without her fiancé's knowledge. Kelly Ecker and Scott Sampson's wedding was set for early October, but Kelly told her friend Charisse that she didn't intend to go through with a legal marriage to Scott. The couple had filed for the marriage license, but Kelly told Charisse she didn't plan to sign the marriage certificate. Kelly admitted to her friend that she was only planning to go through with the ceremony because she was, quote, afraid not to, unquote. She was scared of what Scott might do if she called off the wedding but Kelly had secretly made plans to move out of the home soon after the wedding. She had even rented a house a week before her scheduled nuptials. An ex-boyfriend had secured a U-Haul truck for her to use to move her and Davy's belongings to the new place. Of course, Scott knew none of this. The wedding was to take place at the couple's new home, and tents had been set up on the grounds for the wedding and reception. But two days before the ceremony was to take place, Heavy rain began to fall in the area. By the day before the wedding, the grounds were saturated with water and puddles covered the lawn. Realizing it would not work to hold the wedding there after all, they scrambled to find another venue. They were able to book a banquet room at the historic Ohio building in downtown Terre Haute at the last minute. Guests were diverted to the new location just hours before it was to begin. On October 4, 2014, Kelly Ecker donned her simple but elegant wedding dress and prepared to walk down the aisle. In the bride's dressing room, she was crying. She repeated to her friend, I have to go through with this, but it was obvious to everyone that her heart was not in it. Her parents weren't even in attendance. Pat would later say that they were not invited, she believed because Kelly knew that they did not support the marriage and probably wouldn't attend. More to the point, Scott knew they didn't like him, and didn't want Kelly to marry him, so he may have told Kelly to omit them from the guest list. Just before the ceremony was to begin, Kelly gave Charisse the marriage certificate. She still had not signed it and didn't want Scott to see it. Kelly was still a beautiful bride. All eyes were on her as she entered and made her way to her fiancé. She was not smiling, and neither was he. 
You could feel the tension in the room, Guest said. The ceremony was very awkward, and there was no affection displayed between bride and groom. After the I do's were said and the couple were pronounced husband and wife, Scott gave Kelly a quick kiss, which she did not appear to return. The guests then moved on to the simple reception in the banquet hall. Scott Sampson was seen downing one drink after another and appeared to seethe with anger while doing so. He didn't mingle with his guests, but simply stayed close to the bar. Kelly was trying to put on her best face and entertain her guests, but it was obvious to everyone in attendance that the newly married couple weren't even speaking to one another. Not long after the reception began, Scott took out his credit card to pay for the impromptu wedding and reception, but he was told that his card was declined. Scott blew up and demanded to see the entire bill. Presented with a detailed invoice showing the amount incurred for the room rental, as well as the bar tab for champagne and other drinks for their guests, Scott loudly refused to pay the bar tab, saying he wasn't paying for everyone's drinks, just his own. He then left the reception and headed home without his bride. Kelly, embarrassed, handled the situation with the bill and then told the guests they were welcome to follow her to their house to continue the reception. Gathering up the champagne they had purchased for the wedding toast, she returned to the Creel Street house with a couple of dozen guests in tow. When they arrived, Kelly changed into another dress she had purchased for the reception. It was a fun party dress, still white, but with a beaded bodice. She absolutely glowed as she stood for pictures with her friends, but not her new husband, who continued to drink in a corner and put a damper on the party. Some of the guests would later report overhearing the couple argue during the party. Some said that it was an argument involving a prenuptial agreement, although that was never confirmed. It was said by several guests, however, they'd heard Scott yell at Kelly that she would, quote, never get her hands on my money, unquote. By 1 a.m., most of the guests had left the awkward and tense wedding reception. The only people left at the home were Kelly, Scott, Davy, Scott's elderly parents, George and Deidre, and Kelly's friend, Sharice. Kelly had asked Sharice to stay the night, and she'd agreed. She got ready for bed and went down to sleep in one of the basement bedrooms. A short time later, Sharice awoke to Scott standing over her bed and screaming at her to get out of his house. He was cursing and, quote, looked terrifyingly angry, like he could attack at any second. He was so angry that I was still in his home, Sharice later said. She quickly gathered her things and made her way to the door. Kelly was upstairs, and Sharice reported that she looked scared to death. Sharice asked Kelly twice to come with her, but Kelly just looked at her, her eyes wide and shook her head no. Cherise left the house, terrified for her friend. As soon as she got home, she began calling Kelly to make sure she was okay. But her friend never answered her phone. George Sampson and his wife were staying as guests of his son Scott and his new bride Kelly at their home on North Creel Street. They had attended the couple's wedding the previous day and were sound asleep in the guest bedroom when they heard arguing. George could hear his son yelling loudly at Kelly. He couldn't clearly make out what the argument was about. The next thing he heard was Kelly, who it seemed was talking to someone on the phone. He thought she said something like, hurry, he's going to shoot me. George opened the door of his bedroom and saw his son breaking down the door of the bedroom next door. It was Kelly's son Davy's room. 
George would later report that his son, quote, appeared to be out of his mind, unquote. Kelly was on the phone. She had first dialed 911 at 1.25 a.m. On that first call, Kelly was only able to give the address to her location before the call was cut off. A second call to 911 came in just a minute later. Kelly sounded breathless this time. She said, help me, 4205 North Creel, please. She repeats the address a second time, but both times she transposed the numbers of the address, reporting her location as 42 North Creel instead of 4025 North Creel. What's happening there? The dispatcher asks. Kelly responds, he's beating the shit out of me. Who is? The dispatcher asks. Kelly responds, my husband. Please, Kelly says once more, before the call cuts off again. 911-5-0-5-North-Creel. Please. What's the address? 4205-North-Creel. Kelly sounds frantic and terrified. She quickly gives the address again, still providing the wrong address. Noises are heard in the background, which were later identified as Scott Sampson breaking down the door. Kelly had run into her son's room and locked the door to get away from her drunk and out-of-control husband. His blood alcohol level would later be reported as .143, or almost two times the legal limit. Kelly, still connected to the 911 dispatcher, is heard to say, "Oh." Then she screams, oh my God. A volley of gunshots is then heard before the call is disconnected. 4205 North Creel. Okay, I, 4205 The Sampson's home on North Creel was located in a remote area and not easy to find. Added to that was the fact that Kelly misstated the address of her new home to the 911 operator. The operator was unable to get a precise location because Kelly was calling from her cell phone. It took police 15 minutes to find the correct address and respond to the calls. When they did, George Sampson, Scott's father, met them at the door. He directed the deputies to Davy's bedroom. There they found Kelly Ecker lying dead on the floor at the foot of his bed. She had been shot multiple times in the neck and chest. Davy was still in the room, sitting near his mother's body. He had been there during the whole terrifying ordeal as his stepfather broke down the door and gunned down his mother in front of him. George Sampson reported to the deputies that he'd heard at least seven gunshots and then observed his son calmly walk out of the room with the gun in his hand, headed toward the attached garage. Scott Sampson had then returned inside the house and walked downstairs to the basement. Police quickly worked to secure the scene. They took Davy and Scott's parents out of the house and then surrounded the home and grounds. They were trying to prevent the armed man from running off into the wooded area and perhaps becoming desperate enough to enter a nearby home or become a danger in some other way. They called to Samson to come out unarmed, but there was no response. After over an hour with no communication and no sighting of him, they called in a special response team. A robotic device equipped with a camera was sent into the home. When it reached the basement, Scott Sampson was found lying dead next to a gun safe 
with a single bullet wound to his head and the weapon used near his side. Near the gun safe, several weapons were discovered strewn around the floor. Scott Sampson was a registered federal firearms dealer, meaning he was able to sell and trade guns from his place of residence. Over 90 different weapons belonging to Sampson were found in the home. Hours after Kelly Ecker married Scott Sampson, she was found dead in their home. Her new husband had emptied all nine rounds from a 40 caliber Glock handgun, striking her three times. Her son Davey, in the room at the time, miraculously had not been injured by the gunfire. His emotional injuries, however, were sure to be extensive. After shooting his wife, Samson walked to the attached garage for more ammunition. He then entered the basement, picked up a 45 caliber semi-automatic weapon, and shot himself once in the temple. A lawsuit was filed by Kelly's parents against Scott Sampson's insurance company. They fought for Kelly's son, Davey, to be compensated for the loss of his mother. The lawsuit claimed that Kelly's death was, quote, the intentional act or negligence of George Scott Sampson, and that Davey had suffered the loss of love, companionship, and support, and had incurred costs associated with his mother's funeral, burial, and administration of her estate. As part of the lawsuit, a psychiatrist was called to make a posthumous examination of Samson's mental state during the time leading up to and including Kelly's murder and his suicide. Dr. Brian Joseph concluded that Samson, quote, was suffering from an adjustment disorder with disturbance of conduct, unquote, when he shot Kelly Ecker. The doctor stated that Samson was, quote, increasingly possessive over Ms. Ecker through their relationship. He described him as a very controlling individual who could not understand any kind of resistance and saw all hesitancy as defiance. The theory presented as part of the court record was that on the night of their wedding, Samson discovered that Kelly had not signed the marriage license and was planning to leave him. Upon learning this, he became enraged and murdered her. There are no eyewitnesses who can definitively say that this happened, but her friend Cherise knew that Kelly intended to move out of Scott's house. She testified that Kelly told her she wouldn't be signing the license. As evidence of this, the marriage license expired without ever being filed with the court. Kelly Ecker, therefore, was never legally married to Scott Sampson. Whether this is what angered Sampson or something else really doesn't matter. His behavior towards Kelly became more controlling and abusive the longer the relationship continued. There was no indication that it would have been any different after the marriage than before. In fact, the history of their relationship indicated that Samson became increasingly abusive the more Kelly tried to appease him and give in to his demands. Rather than being placated, Samson instead placed more demands on her, and his abusive behavior increased. Much was made in the news reports at that time about the fact that Kelly had given the wrong address to the dispatcher. Reports point out that it had taken several minutes before officers could arrive to save Kelly Ecker. Tragically, even if she had given the right address, Kelly was shot and killed by Samson within two minutes of placing the first 911 call. There was no way the officers could have arrived in time to save her. Samson was determined to end her life that night, and he did so before Kelly even knew how dangerous he truly was. Kelly's family and friends continued to mourn her loss. 
At her funeral, friends were encouraged to give donations in her name to the Council on Domestic Abuse, located in Terre Haute, an organization that provides resources for people in abusive relationships. If you'd like to donate to this organization, their website is CodaTerreHaute.org. There's a link in the show notes. Davy originally lived with his maternal grandparents after his mother's death, but ultimately moved to another state and is being raised by his father and stepmother. In 2018, the Investigation Discovery Channel aired an episode about this case. Davy's parents objected to its airing as they were not informed that it was being produced and also because images of him were used on the program without their permission. The episode was not pulled by the network, but the photos of him were blurred out later. Davy's stepmother also said that the program erroneously reported that he was a special needs child. Davy was not and is not designated as a special needs child, according to his parents. She also mentioned that her stepson has received counseling for the trauma he experienced and is doing well. Kelly's friends still post on the Facebook page they set up in her memory, Friends of Kelly Ecker. On December 5, 2018, some posted to wish her a happy birthday. I share a birthday with Kelly. And to tell her how much they missed her. On the one-year anniversary of her death, a friend, probably Cherise, poured out heartbreak at losing her friend and wishing she could have convinced her to walk away from the relationship. Quote, I begged her to leave him and not to marry him, all the way up to the point that she walked out of the bridal suite. I knew he was emotionally abusing her. If there was physical abuse prior to October 5, 2014, I am unaware of it. Note, many abusive relationships don't start out with physical abuse. Sometimes the physical abuse happens only once and is fatal. The post continues, quote, There was a point in time that I got sick of it. I was fed up with the back and forth of her putting up with his manipulative behavior, of her being more and more withdrawn and isolated, and of her self-worth disappearing. I watched it happen, and one day, several months before the wedding, I was done. I had thrown up my hands and decided that I couldn't bear to hear about it anymore. I didn't tell her. Friends of people involved in abusive relationships often feel this way. It's frustrating to see your friend or loved one go through this and feel like you have no power to help. It's normal then to project that frustration and want to give up on them. What her friend expresses next, though, shows true compassion. Quote, then she called. I remembered what it felt like to be lonely and to not value myself enough to get out. There is a lot of shame involved with being a victim, and you don't want to tell anyone, but you secretly hope that those close to you will figure it out, so you aren't so alone. Even if I couldn't get her away from him, she needed me to be her friend. She needed my love and my affirmations of her value. She needed all of us. I tried to get her out of it. Many of us did." Unquote. Many will say, why didn't she just leave? But what statistics show is that when a victim of intimate partner violence decides to leave their situation is when they are the most in danger. That is why it's a good idea if you know someone in this situation to connect them with domestic violence resources. Together with advocates that are trained to help, abuse victims can get help in putting together a plan for them and their children to leave a dangerous situation as safely as possible. I will share a list of resources at the end of this episode and will also list them in the show notes. Kelly was quickly swept up in her relationship with Scott Sampson. 
Her family and friends said her self-esteem was already low when she met him, and he most likely picked up on this and exploited it for his own purposes. He was a doctor with money while she was a struggling single mother. He showered her at first with gifts and attention. When he became possessive and controlling, he made her believe it was only because he loved her so much. But possessiveness and jealousy does not equal love, not even close. True love includes respect and trust, neither of which Scott gave Kelly. He was threatening and intimidating and sometimes even embarrassing to Kelly. So she tried to avoid these scenes, agreeing to whatever he wanted in the relationship, which only served to make her more subordinate to him and cause Scott to want to control her all the more. It was a vicious cycle that she couldn't escape. One last note about their relationship. You might not have realized, but it was only 18 months between when Kelly first started dating Scott Sampson and when he killed her. It's a shocking thing to consider. Kelly didn't have much time to even process how quickly the relationship became so dangerous. We also have to remember that, by all accounts, Scott did not become physically abusive until a few weeks before their wedding. Until that time, the abuse was mostly verbal and emotional in nature. I don't think that Kelly Ecker ever knew the lengths Scott Sampson would go to remain in control of her, until his final shocking act of murder. Before we end, I'd like to leave you with some relationship red flags to help you spot if you or someone you know is in an abusive relationship. I've also added the list to the show notes. Here are some of the red flags. Does your partner yell, belittle, or humiliate you? Constantly criticize you and put you down? Blame you for his or her own behavior? Keep you isolated from your family and friends? Control or limit your access to money, telephone access, or a vehicle? Follow or constantly check up on where you are, who you're with, or what you're doing. Destroy your belongings. Force you to be intimate. Threaten to harm you or him or herself if you leave. Prevent you from working or having a career of your own. As you can probably tell from the list, not all abuse is physical. There is also emotional, verbal, and even financial abuse. The abusive partner may control the finances and or block their partner from earning money, giving them even less power in the relationship and making it even more difficult for them to leave without access to financial resources. Studies also show that if a person has abused their partner once, it is very likely they'll do it again, and it often escalates. As well, times between these incidents of abuse will shorten. After an incidence of violence has occurred, there is what is called a honeymoon period, where the abuser will be apologetic and may even shower the abused partner with love, attention, and gifts. They will promise it will never happen again, and there is a period of calm in the relationship. But eventually, the tension will begin to arise until another blow-up and incident of abuse occurs. The honeymoon period tends to get shorter and shorter over time, until there is little to no remorse between incidents of abusive behavior. To be connected with resources in the U.S., you can go to thehotline.org, in the U.K. at womensaid.org.uk, in Australia, 1-800-RESPECT.ORG.AU, and for an international directory, go to hotpeachpages.net. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. You can interact with us in several ways. Follow Once Upon a Crime on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or join our Facebook group. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, 
Just look for Once Upon a Crime Podcast on YouTube. And don't forget, you can become a Patreon member for as little as $2 a month for ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, and more. Go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia, and original music is by Aaron Michael Goldberg. Until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.